Father God, we ask that as we gather round your word this morning, be that in Sunday school or be that in here, that we will turn our eyes to what Jesus, that we will open our eyes and our ears to hear what Jesus would have to say to us this morning. We recognise that we come to a God who loves us and knows us completely. So help us to hear what Jesus would have to say to us this morning. Have you ever learnt a new skill that required a certain amount of technique to get it right? I don't know, maybe, maybe it was something crafty, like knitting or crochet, and there's a certain skill to it. Or maybe you're a sports person and you were, maybe there's a tennis shot or a golf swing. You know, stuff that those who do it really well make it look so easy, but if you actually try to do it, it is really hard. People that I, two groups of people I really, really admire are darts players and snooker players. Because I have tried what they do, and it is really, really hard. Or even like learning a new song on the guitar. You know, particularly if you're fairly new to the instrument and you're trying to work out, oh, this is D, so I have to get my fingers into that position, and then I have to get the G, so I have to make certain that it's this finger and that finger and that finger in that position. And uh, if you're a newbie, you'll be really, really consciously thinking about where each finger is going to go. Or a new golfer will be very, very deliberate about where they place their feet and how they grip the club, how they bend their knees, the distance from the ball. All of that stuff. A, a new driver may carefully go through the whole mirror signal maneuver thing. And you might even find yourself quietly reciting the steps in those early stages. But with practice, it starts to come naturally. You move from visualizing where the fingers go to thinking, right, it's a G now, and you just automatically do it. Or until over time, you're barely even thinking about what the chords are. You're thinking, oh, I've played this song hundreds of times before, and I just know where my fingers should, what my fingers should be doing. Or I've played this shot a hundred times, thousands of times before. I know exactly what I need to do. And in fact, there also even can come a point where if you start to think about what you're doing, that is when you will lose your rhythm. I mean, I had this experience. I was playing tennis in the week. And there's one of the things I've been trying deliberately to do is to kind of slow myself down between my first and my second serve. Because believe it or not, I don't serve a miss every time. It's, it's shocking to believe. <laughs> and, but, I, but I do have this, I, I've developed this bad habit where I will hold two balls in my hand at the start of the point, to begin with, and then I'll throw one up, I'll make a mess of the first serve, and barely without pausing for breath, I'll throw the second one up and serve the second one. Which is kind of fine in social play, but in a match, really, you, you, you shouldn't really be doing that. 
And uh, so, I'm, so I've been trying to sort of develop this strategy. I only hold one ball, I bounce it a few times to set myself, and then I throw it up and hit the ball. I still miss the first serve most of the time. And then I'll slow down, I'll, I'll, I'll pause, I'll, I'll have take the time to pull the second ball out of my pocket. I will bounce it a few times, I will set myself again and try to hit it. And the thing is, I was getting more in when I was just chucking up the second one and not thinking about it. But the moment I started thinking about what I was doing and thinking about how high I was throwing up the ball to make certain I had a good chance of getting it over the net, all of that, I started to find it, find it was getting really, really hard. And, I, and I'm just going to have to hope that it will eventually become ingrained. And... Uh, and that, and that can be a problem, you know, it can also be a problem when things do start to become great, is that, you know, bad habits can creep in too. Judging by a lot of drivers around Harrow, I suspect that when I was talking about that whole mirror signal manoeuvre thing, there were quite a few people in this room, and I'm not going to let you off the hook, who wondered what that signal thing was. There's virtually nobody in London seems to know what it is. But there's something about this idea of something becoming ingrained in it's part of it's natural to it even. That is in the passage that we read today, I shared today, from the book of Jeremiah, where he talks about a new covenant written on the heart. It's taken me a little bit longer than planned, but on the early Sundays of this year, we've been looking at a series of resolutions, promises, or to use the Bible word, co covenants, that God makes with people in the Old Testament. We, we started out looking at the covenant God made with Noah after the flood. And then we went on to the story of Abraham, and how God made promises of land, descendants, and that they would be blessed so that they could bless the whole world. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And next we look at the covenant with Moses and, yeah, and Israel after God brought them out of Egypt and he gave them the Ten Commandments. And last time right, we looked at the covenant he made with David and the longing for a king that will lead them in the ways that God longs them to lead. And as I mentioned previously, all of these uh, covenants, they weren't designed to replace one another. They were building on each other. And underlying them all was God's longing for the world to thrive and to be blessed. But as is pretty much always the case, God does his work through people. And his longing was to do this through people. He wants a people who will live as God calls them to live. To, to shape their lives around his ways. So that their lives will be a witness to those around them of the difference that God can make to them. They were to be a light to the rest of the world. But there was one thing that all of these covenants had in common. The people broke every single one of them. They couldn't keep their end up. I can remember a few years ago, there was a BBC documentary on, it was an archaeological documentary, and it was, it was about things that were done in the area where most of our Old Testament was played out. And one of the things that they found quite remarkable was how many idols they kept turning up. And they said, 
I remember the presenter remarking, hold on a second, the Bible tells us this was a monotheistic people, and they only believed in one God, and yet the archaeology is telling us a different story, because you know, I've been digging up all these other gods. And I remember watching the program and thinking, have you ever read the Old Testament? From the Exodus to the Exile, basically, we have a whole tale of Israel's infidelity to God and their obsession with idolatry. I would expect to find a load of idols. And sure, there were high points. There were periodic moments when the people turned to God, not in trouble or when a particular king sort of turned to God. But they were the kind of high points on a, there were plenty of depths. And for example, there was something of a revival of the King Josiah in the 7th century BC. But it didn't stick. It died with him. And this people seemed just so incapable of keeping it up. The covenants fell apart, they were smashed. Because God, because, not because God couldn't keep his end of the bargain up, but because the people had failed to sustain it for any length of time. And during that period, there were prophets who came along and they said, look, if you don't change your ways, disaster is going to befall you. But they were ignored because no matter how bad things got, there was always an elite who were doing quite well, thank you very much. They always came up smelling of roses, whatever happened. Not at all like today. But what the prophet warned came true. And it all fell apart. It all collapsed. And towards the end of my last time with you, we sort of talked about how David handed the kingdom on to Solomon. But after Solomon, there came a king called Rehoboam, who made a disastrous choice, which caused the whole kingdom to split in two. And the northern kingdom was destroyed by Assyria in around 720, 721 BC. And that left only two of the original 12 tribes in the land. And those two lasted for another 100 or so years, till around 597 BC, when Babylon, when Babylon appeared. And that was the background to the Jeremiah passage. When we came to the Jeremiah passages, everything was just falling apart. Every part of the covenant seemed to be in tatters. Land, the people are in exile. The king, He's been dethroned. The temple where they worship God, that's in ruins. It seemed like everything that made them a people, that gave them their identity, was in tatters. But you know, prophets, prophets can be made quite contrary people. Things they thought were going quite well, the prophets kept telling them it was going to go badly. And no sooner had the doom the prophets predicted or the poem, then the prophets started talking about hope. You see, God still wanted a people through whom he could bless the whole world. And as I said last time, God's commitment to that longing was and is still so much greater than our folly and our sinfulness. And there are occasions, you know, there are occasions in when somebody says something to you and it stands out 
not necessarily because of who that person is or because of the authority they hold or how much they know about that. That can kind of work. But it stands out because it's really out of character for that person. Well, let me explain that. You know, there's that person who is always really critical. Never has a big word to say about anything. And then they say to you, that was really good. And you, know, you have one of two thoughts. What do you think? Have aliens abducted you? Or, oh, that must have been really good. Or there's all, on the other hand, there's, all, there's that person who is normally very, wow, that was fantastic. And they suddenly say something negative. And you're like, oh, I mean, I wasn't as good as I thought. I think back, just over, or just under three years ago, to the night that Boris Johnson came on the telly and told us all to stay at home. Remember it? Now, I knew, even at that time, there was a sense in which we were becoming more aware of the seriousness of the COVID situation as it was at the time. But to a certain extent, what gave this an extra weight, even the history, I guess, but what gave it an extra weight was it was coming from him. From someone, not just because of his position, because it was, because you just knew that what he was, te- what you, he was telling you to do went against every instinct in his body. He really did not want to do this. It is not the kind of person he is. Boris Johnson likes to be the person who gives you good news. He doesn't like to be the one who breaks the bad news. He is a libertarian. He likes things to be freed up. He doesn't like shutting stuff down. So when he says something like this, you're thinking, whoa, this is serious. Well, within the book of Jeremiah, there are a couple of chapters that are just like that. Now, I have to say that Jeremiah was the opposite of Boris Johnson, in so many ways. But one of the things that Jeremiah is not generally noted for is his optimism. He was called the weeping prophet for a reason. He is not one who is going to deliver speeches pointing you towards the sunlit uplands. He lived in a a time of decline, and he wasn't frightened to say so. And when exile came, he also made himself incredibly unpopular by telling the people that this wasn't going to end anytime soon. Others around him said, ah, don't worry, God won't let this happen for long. We'll be back before you know it. We'll have the temple up in no time. Well, it's going to be grand. Actually, we don't quote Jeremiah a lot, but there is one verse, one verse from Jeremiah that often gets quoted. And someone might have even said it to you to encourage you at some point. And if you've been in church for quite a while, or been in churches around churches for a few years, you will know the verse I'm going to speak to the minute I say the first couple of words. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You, you, you may have heard that verse, have you? I can. I've heard people use that so often. And you know what? Virtually no one ever tells you the context. Ever. Nobody even mentions the verse before it. You see, this verse, and I, 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 by all means, some people get encouraged as people and whatever, I'm not saying that. But it comes from a letter written to those who have been taken off into exile and it is telling them, you are not coming back anytime soon. He says to them things like, build houses and live in them. Plant vineyards and harvest them. Keep getting married and have children. Basically, he says, keep life going, else you are going to just be another group of people who disappear in exile. And then God says, when 70 years are over, I will bring you back. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And the way this blessing is sometimes used in modern Christianity, I wonder would it really sound so encouraging if somebody prefaced it with, you might have to wait 70 years or so. But then in the midst of a lot of doom and gloom come a couple of chapters in Jeremiah 30 and 31, which is sometimes called the Book of Comfort. And it's a collection of promises made to the exiles who were in despair. And the words we read together are there. And to all intents and purposes, this was a people who thought their God was done with them. They were being abject failures of keeping up their end of the confidence God had made with them. And everything had fallen apart. It looked like, to all intents and purposes, that God had been defeated. But Jeremiah speaks of that situation. And he says, starts with saying, the days are coming. The days are coming. And that's a double phrase in the Bible. It usually introduces a, a, a statement about what God is about to do. That God is about to do something. Uh, often, although not, often, not always, it is linked with promises that they carried for God to send the Saviour into the world, messianic type promise, promises. And as it's unpacked, we see once again that God is taking unilateral action to restore the relationship. They haven't done anything to deserve it, but God refuses to give up on them. His commitment is greater than their sinfulness. God is taking action to win them back. The days are coming, he says, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. A new covenant. I know there, new is a word that can have a couple of meanings. I'll give you two examples to explain what I mean. One is that somebody says, I'm going to build a new house. And the other one is that some, you know, when somebody says, he's become a new man since he got married. In the first example, new is that it didn't exist before. There was a patch of ground there, but there was no house on it. So when he says, I'm going to build a new house, it is something completely new that wasn't there. 
Whereas the second sense, he's become a new man, is a sense of being a renewed or a hopefully better version of what was there before. Which does Jeremiah mean? I actually think it's the latter. It builds and improves on what has gone before. It, you know, it still relies on everything that has gone before it. And on the one hand, this is really good news. This is the people in despair have been discovering God's not done with this. On the other hand, they could be forgiven for thinking, oh, for goodness sake, what's the point? What is the point? For various times we have failed to live up to any of the other stuff. No sooner had God made a promise to no one of us in time than he got drunk and his whole family life started to fall apart. No, at every turn, Abraham's family were at best a kind of two steps forward, one step back kind of relationship. God would make a promise that Abraham would do something almost immediately that was really, really stupid to knock the whole thing back. When Moses got the law, they would clearly tell them what they were supposed to do. By the time he got back down the mountain, they were worshipping a golden calf. They were told to tie God's instructions to their wrists and foreheads and put them on the posts of their houses to always keep God's way before them. And they did it, quite literally. But it was no good, they still couldn't do it. And they thought, if only we had a king, a king would just help us do all this stuff. So they went and got one of those, and that didn't end up very well either. The leaders just led them into further falling. And every time these prominent things have failed, what's the point of another one? They say the definition of madness is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. God, are you mad? God says, no, this isn't going to be like the other couples I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Because they broke their covenant. I was faithful to them, but they broke my covenant. God acknowledges the previous attempts at this have not gone well. And he knows where the fault is. God's not in denial about any of this stuff. But this was different. Up until now, it had always been external to them. They needed to move from that sense of which finger goes on which string to the point where it just flows naturally. And that was the promise of the new covenant, that it would become part of it. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. God is doing something new. You see, Last time I had a said that God wasn't particularly into the whole temple thing. There was a part of the problem with the whole temple thing was that you could just go through the motions and it not make any difference to life. And let's be honest, that could be true of all worship. In 
Jeremiah kind of reads quite odd in a way. It's like God is going to stop us, is going to stop teaching us and just zap us and create this magical will in us to follow. Wouldn't that be brilliant? To be the kind of people he wants us to be. Not only just to appreciate what he brings to us, but quite be a blessing to the whole world. That's how it reads in Jeremiah, but we've got a bit of a problem that we're that we're more than 2,500 years on. And it's still, we're still winning. It hasn't happened yet. This is all just another failed covenant. Now, see, in truth, there was only ever one person in whom this was completely fulfilled. And that was Jesus. He was the only one who lived and competed complete obedience to what God wanted him. He was the only one who was completely in tune with what God wanted him. And he calls us to follow but if we're really honest, certainly on our own, we are no more capable of living like Jesus than the people of the Old Testament where are keeping the Ten Commandments. And we could ask the question, how are we better off? But there are a couple of ways we are. See, with the coming of Jesus, we are brought one step closer. We see, we truly see what God is like. We see how God wants us to live. He says, watch me and do what I do. We look at Jesus and we see God. And when we look at Jesus, we see far more clearly, how deeply, unfathomably, and how unconditionally we are loved. And Jesus, not only in his life, lives out that you cover what it looks like. In his death, he brings it to us. On the night of his arrest, Jesus sat with his disciples and he broke bread. And he said, this bread is my body, it's broken for you. And then he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus brought the new covenant, but it came at a cost. I mentioned before how the word generally used for making a covenant was to cut a covenant. And often it did in the ancient world involve the shedding of blood. And on the night of his arrest, Jesus takes a cup and says, His blood, his death, is making a whole new start possible. A whole new way of relating to God is being opened up for us. And in many ways, the contrast between the old and the new is not just about being an internal, external thing. It's more how we view God's ways. It is no longer kind of an imposition from an authoritarian God trying to tell us how to live. We're invited into a relationship of mutual love. See, law can frighten you into obedience. Love and gratitude are altogether far more effective than the others. You see, God is still in the business of blessing the world. And God is still in the business of looking for a people who will carry that blessing into his world. 
and God is still more committed to that than we are. God's commitment is still greater than our failings, our folly, our madness. But with Jesus, we're not left alone to do it. He promised the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in those who have put their trust in spirit that we let it will, will work in us transform our inner motivations of mind, will spirit the spirit reminds us that we are God's children that nothing can separate us from God's love that if God is for us nothing can be against us the spirit reminds us that we are caught up in something bigger than us that we are part of a story of a God who has a longing to bless us and through us to bless the world. Without the grace and intervention of God, we are no more capable of saving ourselves than everyone who went before, who lived under all those other covenants that we looked at over the last few weeks. Without the grace and intervention of God, the new covenant would just be one more failed idea. Just a revamped version of one of those other ones of Jesus it could be a reality in us and it doesn't matter how much we screwed it up so far it doesn't matter how far down the road you've gone it doesn't matter if everything in your life is just after that there's just one criteria and I just want all I want to do is ask you to check one thing just check are you still breathing anyone not breathing God is seeking a people through whom he can bless the whole world. And you're invited to be one of them. It isn't easy. If it was, we'd have got there ages ago. But we're not left alone to do it. The spirit within us not only leads us in the path that God wants us to follow it, the spirit empowers us to do it. The spirit within us writes God's ways in our mind and our hearts. The Spirit shows us that even if it isn't the easiest way of living, the way of Jesus is a truly better way to live. The way of Jesus is a way that leads not only to life, but to blessing for all world. God doesn't just sap us and make it happen instantly. Oh, sometimes I wish he would. And sometimes when I look at that guitar 
Chuck Bolton walked on and then probably play. But as many times I can kind of my hand sense. I kinda wish I wish I could just pick that up and play that like Mark Knopfler. God is a lot more patient than just his eyes. And God is a lot more committed to it than we are. And God still has a lot to bless as well. He still has a lot to bless us to join him in that. And it begins with overthought, faltering steps. Where there are times where we have to actively make the choice to do the right thing. But in time, if we work with it, if we persist in it, the Spirit writes God's ways in our hearts and our minds. So that God wants from us becomes second nature to us. The right that we just do. The right thing to do. Not because it was written in zone in stone. Not because there's a, a guy in the sky who will zap us if we don't. Because it's written on the heart as a response of love. Grace and peace.